Today will we be reading from Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. As they were travelling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, let me, go, let me first go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back to is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ashley. Great. Well, welcome, friends. My name is Michael. I'm uh, I kind of serve in a role called the lead minister of the United Family. So if you've never met me before, if you're like, he doesn't usually go here, you would be correct. Uh, I, uh, I live on the Gold Coast with my wife and two children. My wife's here. My two boys are screaming up in kids' life um, at the moment. No one else's kids are screaming, by the way, just mine. All your kids are fine. Uh, and New Life is a movement of churches. Our, our heart, our hope is that we want to see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading local thriving churches. We have three churches at the moment, Coolangatta, Rabina and Brisbane. And who knows that the service is best at 4pm in the heart of Brisbane City. <laughs> so good. I will convince the rest of you that that is the case. Hey, a couple of things. I was so blessed by what you shared, Rachel. That was, that was beautiful. Um, this morning, I had the privilege of baptizing a young man who uh, was rescued from a DV situation with his mother. And uh, because of that, they couldn't stream the baptism online. But he came to know Jesus through Alpha as well. And was just saying, hey, Alpha changed my life. And then to hear your gentle but beautiful transformation, it just reminded me, man, Alpha's not the thing that works. The Holy Spirit is faithful when we respond to his, uh, to his invitation. So you can trust this. You can trust that God works, God moves, and God speaks. Who could you invite to Alpha? The second thing I would say, I think this is like the fifth thing I've said, but we'll go for second for now. I've actually not been feeling well all weekend. I've had a tummy bug so far. I've just eaten crackers. Tonight, my dinner will be Vegemite on toast. I say that to you because I need some prayer. I feel a little bit sick at the moment. Um, nothing's going to come up because nothing's gone in. Uh, but having said that, some of you are like, this is a weird first service in Brisbane. It gets weirder. Wait till Alex preaches next week. On that note, friends, um, oh, you know what? I just want to honor Alex and Kath. Um, but I realized, sixth thing, stay with me. Guys, when we planted Brisbane, there was a dream that Brisbane would have an established place in the heart of the city. Now we do. And I remember back in the days when the team here was trying to find an office and trying to put down roots, and we just couldn't. We just really struggled. But there is more happening in New York, Brisbane than I can poke a stick at. I am so encouraged that half of you I've never met before because you, you're, you're new, you're coming into this community. It's so beautiful. And I think that's just the beautiful leadership from Alex and Kath. Alex inspires me to follow Jesus deeper and better with how he walks humbly with his flaws and how he encourages me in my strengths. And so I just think you guys have great pastors here at Brisbane and you've got a great team. So if you've not thanked someone today, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're here as well. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're here as well. And on that note, friends, I need some help from God today. Would you join with me as we pray? Hey, gracious God, I'm so thankful for what we've already experienced today. For, from revolutionary prayers to, to lives and testimonies changed by the gospel. But God, we just pause and I thank you as we come before your word. I know and believe it never returns void. God, no matter how bad I preach, your word is alive. 
it cuts like a double-edged sword into our hearts that we might hear and receive what you're saying, not what I'm saying. So Holy Spirit, may your voice be turned up as my voice is dialed down. What do you want to say to us today? Less of me, more of you, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite shows on television is a show that I'm hoping uh, I can find some compatriots here. It's a show called Grand Designs. Anyone else love Grand Designs? Good old Kevin McLeod. Uh, it's the best version of Australia and New Zealand. They're all right. But if you want to know good, uh, like binge-worthy television, Grand Designs is where it's at. There's no swearing. There's nothing that you have to need to turn, close your eyes to or switch channels. It's just awesome. The only problem with Grand Designs is the problem of envy and jealousy as you're watching these people. For those of you who've never seen this show, Kevin McLeod, who I'm convinced came up with it as a way that he could just do whatever he wants with his life, decided to go and document people's decision to build their own dream homes from scratch. So maybe they're moving into an already you know, a de- a degraded house or emptied barn, or maybe starting with just an empty plot of land. He goes and he documents what it means for these people to actually build the home of their dreams. It's a fantastic show. And you kind of watch these people, you know, plan having floating jacuzzis and like rotating restaurants in their houses and like slippery slides into their bars. And you're like, oh my gosh, number one, I will never be able to afford this. And number two, how on earth are you affording this? The show kind of plays out and it takes sometimes six months, sometimes three years, sometimes five years, which is why I believe Kevin does nothing else with his time other than this project. But he always asks two questions. At the start of every documentary, Kevin always asks two things. He says to the couple about to build the house, how long do you think this is going to take and how much do you think this is going to cost? And for those of you who watch the show, you know they always get it wrong. The couple's always like, oh, it's probably going to take six months. Yeah, like we're going to project manage ourselves. You know, if you watch Grand Designs, anyone that project manages their own house, it's like, that thing's going down the drain. There's the other question is how much is going to cost? So like, oh, you know, 300000 because we've got like some friends. We've got some friends. We've got some friends. And then you also learn that friends in the industry, that's a terrible thing to base a house on. And so it ends up cost, started costing 600 ends up costing like $3 million, and it's horrible. You get to the end of the show, almost without fail. And Kevin's walking around this house as he's getting to it as if he did anything to contribute. And he's like, you know, wow, this is fantastic. And they're like, yeah, you know, these battle-worn, weary couple. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's so great. And he sits down with them over a cup of tea. He goes, so let me ask, how much, how long did it take? And they're like, oh, you know, three years. And he's like, oh, yes, it was a fairly big project. But he's like, Kevin, shut up, man. Like, you did nothing. And the second thing, he goes, so how much did it cost? And it's always over and above what they anticipated. And in that moment, sometimes they're in love with their house. But sometimes there are these moments where they're disengaged. They're disillusioned. They're discouraged. They're like, man, why did we do this? Some of them have even disowned the house and ready to sell it. All because, why? They didn't answer these two questions well at the start. How long is it going to take? And how much is it going to cost? You know, humans are actually really good at this. When the human engineering feat of a Suez Canal was actually planned, they budgeted it, they planned it, they thought it was going to be great, ended up costing 20 times the original amount. The Sydney Opera House was 15 times over budget. We're great as humans as ignoring in completeness the two most important questions of any building project. How long do you think this is going to take? How much is it going to cost? But friends, these aren't just great questions for building. They're important questions of discipleship. How long do you think following Jesus is going to take? And how much is it going to cost? 
When was the last time you asked those questions? When was the last time you hopped up in church and you heard someone that came to know Jesus and you're like, hey, how much do you think this is going to cost you? We don't do that, right? No one ever preaches on that because who's ever going to respond to something that's going to cost us? But I think we actually set ourselves up for failure. Now, Jesus is not like a Macazad which tries to convince you that it's Big Mac it has on the screen is the same one you're going to get through drive through He doesn't do bait and switch like that. The life that Jesus promised you is the life that he explains fairly clearly in the Gospels. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Friends, I think there are some people in the room right now you're discouraged. You're disillusioned with your faith. You're disengaged. Maybe you're ready to walk away. And, and, and I have a gut feeling it's because maybe no one asked you those two questions at the start. Do you know how long this is going to take? Do you know how much this is going to cost? Maybe some of you are in the room right now and you're new to Christianity or you haven't even made the decision to follow Jesus yet. You're here on a whim. You're rocking through Brisbane City and you're like, there's a guy talking. I've got nothing to do for the next 40 minutes. So I'm going to you know, come in and welcome. We're so glad you're here. But I would ask and I would, I would just offer, hey, have, have you become disillusioned with your life? And maybe you've heard of this man named Jesus and you're like, could this man have something to offer me? And yes, friends, he can. He does. But the image and the life he has to offer you is very clear about what it's going to take. And maybe you're here today and you're lukewarm, you're apathetic, you've been rocking in and rocking out of New Life Prison for a while. I believe every single one of us has an opportunity to encounter Jesus Christ today. In fact, that's what this whole series is about. But here's what I also know. As we're in this series called Encountering Jesus, we read through the Gospels and these different stories of how people have encountered Christ. What we find is when people encounter Christ, the lame can walk, the blind can see, the demon possessed, they're set free. Miracles happen. Lives are transformed when people encounter Jesus. But there's another group of people, another group of people who also encountered Jesus and nothing changes. You see, sometimes, friends, we live with the delusion that all I need is to encounter God. All I need is to actually encounter Jesus. There were people who came face to face with the living Messiah and they walked away with nothing shifting. Why? Because encountering Jesus isn't enough. It's all about how you respond to that encounter with Christ. Friends, how have you responded to Christ today? Have you counted the cost of what it's going to take to follow Him? That's essentially what this whole scripture that Ash so beautifully read out is all about. It's about the unaware follower. The unaware follower who takes a step and thinks, hey, I would love to follow Christ. But then Jesus says, hey, before you get too excited here, let me be clear about what this is going to mean. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57, the story opens up for us as Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. What's this guy doing? This guy's responding to hypersensationalism. He's seen that a bunch of people are starting to follow Jesus. He's pumped and excited that people are starting to get excited about this guy named Jesus. He's, he's going to throw his lot in with Christ. He's seen the people healed. He's heard of the teaching. He's like, this is a guy worth following. You see, Jesus didn't just start to generate friend, followers' friends. He also began to generate fans. Fans who were so excited about his growing momentum. And so a guy comes along, maybe like some of us. You've all experienced it, right? One of you has said, hey, 
Uh, you hear a podcast that's so convincing and so great. You're like, I can't wait to respond to this. You hear a great sermon from Alex one week. You're like, I'm in. I'm all about following Jesus. And you jump on board. But there's this moment, right? When we follow Jesus or we say that we want to, if it's based on emotionalism or a moment of hype, have we known how long it's going to take and do we know what the cost is going to be? Jesus turns around to this man. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. You almost get the heaviness in Christ's heart because he can almost hear him thinking, do you know where I'm going? I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not where I sit on a throne. Not where I sit on a throne, but where I pick up a cross. And Jesus turns to the man. He says, there's foxes and they have dens. There are birds and they have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. What's Jesus saying here? Pretty much, it's sinful to own a home. I'm kidding. Not really. Here, go. Feel free to go own your own home. What's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that he's hoping that those people who are following him are going to be insomniacs and that we're just going to charge and caffeine charged all day long? We're like, boo, I can't wait. We're just awake all the time. No, like there's something deeper happening here in this moment. When he's saying the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he's confronting an obstacle in this young person's life, in this maybe middle-aged person's life, or who knows, maybe this retiree's life. He's saying, hey, I want you to be clear. It looks good following me now. It looks good following me in this moment. The crowds are with me. But where I'm going is not comfortable. Where I'm going is not nice. Where I'm going is hard. And this challenges us. Now, some of you have heard of the prosperity doctrine. Some heard of you heard of the prosperity gospel. When we talk about these two things, sometimes we think that it's just about those moments when the church says, if you give money to God, he'll give you a Ferrari. Now, most people who can put two and two together would recognize that's really wrong and nowhere in Scripture is that biblical. But what else the prosperity gospel teaches us is this subversive teaching we all kind of buy into, that following Jesus means that life is going to be comfortable. That following Jesus means that life is going to be easy. That following Jesus means your bank account should be full, that your health should be fine, that everything in your job should go your way. And that when it doesn't, what do we do? We turn around like, God, where are you? Things are hard right now. And Jesus never promised this at all. Jesus never promised a life of comfort. And friends, sometimes too few of us have counted the cost of comfort. Jesus didn't come to save people to be comfortable, but to save people to be on mission with him and for him. You know where I saw this play out the most? It's three years ago in the middle of COVID, right? Three years ago, it was almost three years ago. The world got hit by the pandemic. And regardless of what you think about lockdowns or where you sit on the whole debate, we were all in lockdown during that time. Everyone was in their home in March 2020. And our whole church just went online. We all learned how to Zoom. About you know, 1% of the population learned where the mute button was. The other 99% are still flipping learning where the mute button is on Zoom. Amen. It's like horrible. It's even myself. I'm like, where's the Zoom? Where's the mute button? There's this moment where we all went online as a church. And to be honest, not everyone enjoyed it. Not everyone liked going online. But we did it because there was no other option. And there was a moment, I remember distinctly, where I was talking with someone and I was talking about how their faith was dwindling, how they were struggling in that moment. And I said, oh man, like, it sounds like you're alone in your home. This is difficult. Like, have, you, have you been able to join us online? Have you been able to participate and like, join in the online digital community? And I remember the line so clearly. I've used it before in a sermon. They simply said, oh, yeah, well, I was online, but Netflix won. Sorry. And I was broken in that moment. 
Because I was realizing that you take away the structures of ease, the structures of regularity, the structures of habit. We go towards our lowest common denominator. And what do we do? We just chase comfort. What do I feel like in a moment? And isn't this true? Don't we all have a point of pain where we then go, I, I just think it's too hard. I think it's too hard to follow Christ. I think it's too hard in this moment to, to actually, you know what? I'm seeking comfort. I deserve a house. I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to pursue this. And the question I would ask you is, how bad would the economy have to get for you and your, and your family before you questioned Christ's rule and reign in your world? I think this is a question we're going to have to wrestle with. How many no's to the house you want to buy would you have to hear? How many failed job promotions? How many difficulties in your world where things just aren't going your way would have to come across your past before you turned around on God and said, hey, you owe me something. And Jesus would stand there and go, hey, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm going to a cross. Jesus calls us to counter cost. Friends, can I encourage you to know that if our discipleship is the pursuit of comfort, we will lose Jesus. Christ, the only thing he comes to comfort is our heart and our souls on the journey home. Our bodies and our lives will experience the full weight of suffering in this world. Have you counted the cost of suffering? You know, the next thing that Jesus confronts is a man comes along and instead of Jesus, him approaching Jesus, Jesus approaches him. This is in verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But this man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the first kind of scenario, it's easy. He's like, you know, oh, it seems like Jesus is talking about comfort. He's not really against us owning homes. He's not really against us having money in our bank account. None of that's wrong. He's just saying it's not the point. The point of discipleship isn't that we get more things to make our lives better. It's that we live on mission for Christ. But here in this moment, we're like, okay, what's Jesus talking about here? Are you trying to tell me that if I have a parent that passes away, Jesus is going to rock up and be like, you can't go to their funeral. That's weird. Where does Jesus get off? Like, come on, this is a bit much, right? Like in that moment, can I encourage you? We should have these visceral reactions to Scripture. Some of you are like, can he say that? We should ask questions about Scripture because they should cause us to ask these things that force us to go deeper. Now, in this moment, we can kind of think of Jesus being harsh, but most theologians think that what Jesus is talking about here isn't refusing a man's ability to grieve a family member. In fact, most theologians would, would surmise that if someone is walking around the streets, perhaps their father hasn't yet died. In fact, the reason why he's walking around the streets is because his father's not dead at all. And so what this man is actually saying is there was a cultural assumption that his role and, and the cultural pressure was that he would stick around until his father had died and only then would his life, the inheritance and security that he received, be in order that he could then go do whatever he wanted. It wasn't an issue of Jesus' insensitivity, friends. If you've got a funeral or you know someone that's grieving, Jesus is not against that. That's not what this is about. In this moment, Jesus is confronting something that we all sometimes offer at the feet of Christ. An excuse. An excuse. Hey, come follow me. Yeah, I will. Um, great. Love it. However, I'm going to do it here after I've done these things. 
We're going to go buy a house. Once I do that, we'll kind of be able to be freed up to be more hospitable. Once we're more hospitable, we'll, we'll start inviting some people. Around. Hey, no, 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 what we're going to do is once I get that promotion, then, then things will be in line. And then maybe, you know, after a couple of years of being safe and secure, then I'll invite that person to Alpha Jesus. Just back off a little bit. I've got a plan. Hey, just, just trust me, God. Hey, when I get that girlfriend, when I get that boyfriend, when I move, when, when things fall in line, hey, Jesus, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. If you ask a parent, any time someone, that, one of my children, delays obedience, I'm not like, aw, great. <laughs> Parents know the line, delayed obedience is actually just disobedience. It's really someone saying no. There's a neighbor who rocks up to his neighbor's house and he wants to borrow a lawnmower, knocks on the door and says, hey, could I borrow your lawnmower? The other neighbor says, I would love to let you borrow my lawnmower. Ah, unfortunately, the flights have been canceled from New York to Los Angeles. So, <laughs> you know, no. And I says, what on earth does the flights from New York to Los Angeles have to do with borrowing your lawnmower? He says, it doesn't actually have anything to do with it. But see, if I don't want to let you use my lawnmower, one excuse is just as good as another. And, and I say that because I think sometimes it's what we offer. What excuse gets me off? An excuse is still an excuse. And what Christ is looking for is people who are obedient because our excuses are the thing that got us here in the first place. Remember Adam and Eve? What happened? She gave me the fruit. Absolutely denial of responsibility. Here is the reason why I am where I am. Friends, what excuses are we offering to Christ right now I believe there are some of us in this room who have felt the niggle of God prompting us to do something for too long. Some people say to me, man, Michael, you know, I just, I don't experience God. I haven't encountered him in a while. One of the really good questions, when was the last time you did hear God tell you to do something? What did you say? In my life, when I've said no, every no turns the voice down a little quieter. Every note. Because we want Jesus to say what we need, but he's going, I actually know what we want, but he actually knows what we need in these moments. Friends, there are some of you right now that are being prompted to invite someone to Alpha this coming October, and you're, you're sweating, you're nervous about it, and you're scared, and Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me. There's someone here who God's actually called you to pick up your roots and go move somewhere on mission, and Jesus is saying, follow me. And you're like, yeah, but just not right now. Like, could it be later? And Jesus is saying, follow me. There's some of you that God's even calling you to go overseas on mission. Maybe to another country to work, or maybe to another country on mission. And you're going, this doesn't fit. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Maybe it's to serve a church. Maybe it's to give financially to the church or to the poor or something. I don't know what it is. I'm not trying to tell you what it would be, but I actually believe that Christ is calling to us all. Say, hey, will you come follow me? I will, just once I go bury my dad. He could be around for another 15 years, though, so stick around, Jesus. And ultimately, the excuses superimpose this belief that we believe we have another breath owed to us. That we know tomorrow is coming. And we don't. We don't. No one knows what is going to happen tomorrow, but we know what is happening now. And Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, follow me now. You may not have the future you think. Follow me here. But unfortunately, so often we listen to our cultural responsibilities. Can I just say, honestly, friends, I think the economic pressure on us at the moment, that there is these narratives that are ungodly. 
The narrative that we all have to own a house or five houses to be financially stable, I don't think that's a godly pressure. I think that there are these moments in our world where young people or old people or middle-aged people have these pressures to marry, settle down and have kids and build a certain life. And it's a cultural pressure. But what Jesus starts to come along and do is he says, I don't want you to follow culture. Count the cost of not following culture. Come and follow me. The third person comes along. And in this moment, he kind of preempts Jesus. He comes up to Jesus in verse 61. He says, still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replies, no one who puts a hand to the plow, looks back, is fit for service to the kingdom of God. Now still, we're like, all right, I mean, come on, Jesus. Like the guy, like he was probably going home with a glass of like some milk and bread for his wife. I used want him to leave, and she's gonna be like, "Was he raptured? What the heck happened in this moment?" He's like, he's like cut ties on that mobile phone back then. And once, once again, we've got to kind of recognize there's deeper things happening than just a man wanting to go back and say goodbye. In fact, most theologians and historians wrestle with this idea that in this moment, this man comes to Christ and preempts Christ. Says, "Hey, I'm gonna follow you. Great, just gonna head home and have a chat with uh, the folks and and uh, the family, and then I'll I'll come follow you." It's a short period, short turnaround time. So why has Jesus got an issue with it? Why does he say, hey, don't look back? Is it because he doesn't want us to be responsible to our families? No, I believe one of my first ministries to my wife, Sarah. We love each other. That's our first thing that God has called us to do. We love our children. That's the first thing God's called us to do. I'm, I'm going to go home and tell my wife if I'm not coming home. Like, you know, we're going to have that conversation. I've got to go somewhere else on behalf of God. What's, what's Jesus saying here? It's because he knows what the man's doing. This is just another excuse. Because he knows he'll go back to a family who haven't met Jesus, who don't know the stories, don't know the reputation, don't know what's going. Say, so, hey, this guy named Jesus, you know, asked me to follow him and I've come home to say goodbye, but like, what do you, what do you think? In fact, most theologians say that most people fail in obedience for God because they ask too many other people their opinion. Hey, what do you think about, oh yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit weird. Yeah, it might not. Good idea. Okay, I'm glad that we're all together in a committee of indecision and mediocrity. Like, thanks. That's so awesome. Like, this is, this is fantastic. I'm glad that we could all decide that together. And Jesus says, hey, it's, it's not about me being against your family. It's about me being for the kingdom. I'm calling you into it. Jesus wasn't saying the man could never return. He says, don't look back to what was. I'm right here in front of you. Come follow me now. Come follow me now. And friends, we have commitments in our life. We have past hurts. We've got relationships that we think we need to solve our pasts. We think we need to solve those relationships, make sure they all fit nicely before we take that step to follow Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want your life to look a certain way before you take the step. Jesus isn't waiting for you to get things in order. Jesus isn't waiting for everything to look nice and everyone to agree and everyone to be okay that you've decided to follow Jesus and do whatever he says before you take the step. He's always saying, now. Come follow me. You know, one of the things that interests me the most about this is how we approach baptism. And this is controversial because some of you have said this to me. We always approach baptism like, I'm just not ready yet. But I've decided, and, and the interesting, there's nowhere in scripture where anyone offers that. They, go, they never go, I'm just not ready to get baptized yet. Literally, what happens when people start to follow Jesus, they look around for the nearest body of water. They're like, where is water? Let's go. And they just go and they get baptized. Why? 
Because baptism was the first example of obedience to Christ and making a public declaration of your faith. I just want to say, I sense there might be some people in the room who you're saying, I'm just not ready to get baptized yet, as if you reach a level of being a super Christian, and then, oh, now I've leveled up, I've memorized Leviticus, here we go, I can get baptized. That's just never the case. Always in Scripture, it's, I've decided to follow Jesus. Let's go and put you in some water, make this thing public and official. Some of you friends, it's time. You're trying to get everything in line, and Jesus is saying, no, it's time right now. Come follow me. You know, I was praying this morning, and I'm, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to, to, to respond. Some of you for the first time. I'm like, God, I don't think this is the message that someone that's first time in church or first time, in, like, this isn't really that encouraging. It's like, come follow Jesus. It's going to cost everything. Woo! Hey! Yeah, we're going to put you in water. Like, there's like, you know, it's, well, what is that about? And I just sense God challenged me. He's like, Michael, I've never had an issue with painting the picture of discipleship for people. And people have still chosen to follow. You want to know why? Because what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's not trying to create a hurdle and be like, you want to come follow me? Well, the bar's this high. Forget about your dad. That's not what he's doing. In fact, I think if he was to call you to follow him, the conversation we have for you would look nothing like these three people. In fact, when you read through Scripture, very rarely does Jesus have the same conversation. Every conversation's different. Have you ever noticed that? And I always wonder why. It's because Jesus isn't painting these broad brushstrokes across humanity. Individually, he comes to every person and he sees the heart. He goes, I know what's going on for you. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell it all and give it away. But to others, he celebrates these women who are generously giving money to him as they're earning it in their business. He doesn't tell them to sell it all and give it away. He says one thing to another, another thing to someone else. Why? Why is Jesus so inconsistent? Because his issue is not trying to give everyone to look the same. It's to deal with the same problem that has different manifestations. And the issue that he's confronting here in these three people is idolatry. See, in each one of their lives, they have something on their throne that is controlling them more than they are actually wanting to be controlled by Jesus. They're coming just being, hey, I want to follow you, but. And whatever follows that but is actually the Lord and Savior and King and God of what they've chosen to worship. There's someone who says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, man, I think you worship comfort too much to come follow me. Do you know that? Hey, I want to follow you. Hey, listen, I, I think you, you're too worried about cultural pressures right now. That's, what, that's what's ruling your life. Hey, I want to follow you. I, I know, but you think you want to get everything in order with your family first? Like, I'm, I'm not a priority. I'm the priority. I don't want to play second fiddle because anything else taking priority over me is exactly how the world got here in the first place. John Piper would say it like this. It'd be two slides down. He says, in other words, the point of all these tough words as Jesus interacts with different people is not to create laws that all disciples or all missionaries have to keep. Thou shalt give all your money. Thou shalt give half your money. Thou shalt go without a bed. Thou shalt go without a funeral for your dad. The point is that Jesus knows everyone's idol. Jesus knows perfectly what is competing in your heart with affection for him. He looks at every one of us in the face this morning or this evening and sees right to our heart. Why? Because he knows that the things that we're worshiping other than him are killing us. They're stealing our joy. Chasing comfort leads us to worry when we're not comfortable. Chasing cultural obligations leads us to be concerned and anxious when actually we don't meet up with culture's standards. 
Chasing the commitments of our family means that we're putting all the effort on ourselves to fix things that we were never called to fix before following him. He says, I don't want this for you. I want a life that's life to the full. It may not be comfortable, but it will be joyful. It may not be easy, but man, you're going to change the world. Follow me. If you go back a slide, James, Jesus says this. Anyone who, who puts their hands to the plow and looks behind them, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why? He's painting this picture of saying what it means to follow him. See, I'm not a farmer. I don't know how to plow. So this is my best guess. But when someone's plowing back in those days, the idea was they wanted straight lines to maximize the space to increase the harvest. And so what you wanted to do is, is fix your eyes on the horizon and walk in a straight line as possible. But if you're going to look over your shoulder, then the body goes where the head is looking. So you're going to pull the thing into an awkward space and you're going to screw up the pattern. What Jesus is saying is that what, we, what I'm calling you to do is not worry about all the things you're trying to fix behind you. There's a new future you're heading towards. Fix your eyes on me. This is why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, hey, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily weighs you down. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the beginner and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, some of the issue with our lack of ability to encounter Christ hasn't come from Jesus' absence. It's come from our inattention to what He's calling us to in this moment. He's saying, fix your eyes on me. But I don't know, Jesus. Fix your eyes on me, but I don't know, Jesus. Because there was a moment where a guy was walking on the waves and as long as Peter looked at Christ, the impossible was happening. But as soon as the worries of the world and the failures of his flesh started to be made real to him, he sank down and all Jesus looked at him and said, where was your faith? Look at me. Friends, where is your gaze set? What has really got the affections of your heart? The reformer, Martin Luther, said it, simply, said it simply like this. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God and your functional Savior. What are we clinging to today? And how's it going? Jesus right now in this moment is saying to those of you who have been following him for a while, it's time, come follow me again. Some of you today are here for the first time, but you know you're consumed by worry and anxiety. I'm not talking just about mental health. I've got mental health staff. I you know, struggle with anxiety myself. I'm talking about with those anxious thoughts that plague you. Like surely this, there has to be more than this. And Jesus is saying, come follow me. You're worried about the news and all the stuff that's happening at the moment. And Jesus is saying, come follow me. Come follow me. What's your response, friends? Maybe he's been calling you to witness to someone for a while. Maybe it's jumping on with fishers of men, inviting someone to Alpha, joining a small group, starting a small group, taking a step back from something or taking a step into something. Or maybe there's someone in this room right now that Jesus is saying, I am as good as they say. It's worth it. Why? Because Jesus came to die a death that we should have died after living a life we could not live. Why? Because you were the joy set before him. You were his passion. He wanted to redeem you, renew you, and restore you to living a life of purpose, not weighed down by the trappings of this world, but set free to follow Him fully, to be the true humanity He created you to be. Are you living that life, friends? Have you counted the cost? How long is it going to take? The rest of our lives. How much is it going to cost? Everything. 
and it's worth it. Because it costs Jesus everything. And he never regrets paying the price for you any single moment. Because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. Are you willing to trust him today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you in this moment and I believe the gospel is good news, but it's costly news. You don't move into our lives and say everything gets to stay the same. You have a grand design. Something far beyond our imaginations could possibly conceive. But first we have to answer the call. Will you follow me? not in our terms, not in our conditions. Will you follow me? So friends, as we're sitting here today, we're just heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want to create an opportunity. Across the services today, I've just been so blessed to see people for the first time respond to Jesus. And I'd just love to invite you that this might be a moment where Jesus is calling you to respond to him for the first time. That maybe right now you've heard the call of the rabbi on the shore of your heart. He's saying, follow me. Follow me. You don't have to have it worked out. Your life doesn't have to be squeaky clean. He takes care of that. But God, what about don't worry about it? He's got it. But he wants to offer you something that only he can. And it comes by repenting and turning from who we were in our sins and stepping to who he's called us to be. So I just want to make this humble offer. Friends, if that's you today, you're here and you're like, I want to follow Jesus. If you want to make that decision for the first time, you want to recommit that decision, what I'd love you to do right now is you just raise your hands wherever you are in this room. I'll wait for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for people being brave, to making this decision to decide and to follow you. What I want to do right now, I can't see everyone up top, but if you put your hands up up top as well, I would love to just pray a prayer. We're going to pray together. And in this moment, this is a prayer we can all pray for the hundredth time or for the first time. It's really simple. It's a prayer between not to you and me, it's a prayer between you and God. You just love everyone in the room, so just repeat after me. If Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you want Him to be, is what we can pray. We say these words, Dear Jesus. Oh, we can do better than that. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I choose to follow you. I turn from my idols. Take your rightful place. Teach me to trust you. As my Savior, my Lord, and my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for anyone that made that expression for the first time today, that decided that this is something that they chose to do because they see and hear you calling them and they say, yes, it's time. Father, we join in with heaven. We celebrate. We rejoice. But Lord, we ask, would you give them the strength for the journey ahead? May you crystallize in their, in, in, in their eyes that they might see you more than anything else. And they walk home as they stumble home. May they keep their eyes fixed.